Well, this morning we were in Ephesians chapter 6, and this evening we'll be in Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, looking at the sword of the Spirit, this morning I put the, our emphasis on really the communal aspect of the armor of God. And, and I think it's important for us to keep this in the forefront of our mind that as a Christian soldier or a member of the church, a part of this royal uh, army serving in the kingdom of God, that we do not exist on an island outside of ourselves, that the church is God's plan and vehicle for moving the gospel forward in the world and also for equipping the saints and providing them with everything that they need. And if we're going to understand that, we have to understand how the church operates and how it functions. Just going through the armor of God, the emphasis at every turn on every piece of spiritual armor, everything that we keep coming back to in this passage is that you need to rely completely, wholeheartedly on God. And that's what we find when we look at the sword of the Spirit. Now, there's that distinction that I called attention to a few weeks ago that as we turn the corner from the um, helmet of salvation we have the first actual offensive element for combating the schemes of the devil, the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit. Well, the sword of the Spirit is guiding, but also it is a weapon against the schemes of the devil. And to look at that, that'll be our attention this evening as we understand that the real em emphasis that Paul is giving us is that each Christian should be so filled with the Spirit that they are equal co-laborers in the ministry of God. All equal co-laborers in the ministry of God because that's where the real power of the church comes from. Not in a select few, not in one or two, not in three, but in everyone collectively coming together with the same mission, the same objective, the same goal that has been outlined by our one captain. That is God, guiding and leading each individual through His Spirit that dwells within each believer. And to summarize everything we talked about this morning, believe it or not, we could simply say that the power of God's Spirit is the privilege of the church and it is the guiding force of the church. As we turn our attention to the fact that Paul draws the analogy to the sword, I want to talk about this formula that we can pull out of Scripture that gives us kind of a clear picture of what the power of the church being led in the Spirit is. This, of course, is the Word of God that we rely on. We made this point this morning that Paul isn't talking about Scripture when he says Word of God, that he's talking about the utterance of the Spirit who guides individuals. Um, and when I say that, I tried to also make clear that our context and our circumstance is very much different than the church in Ephesus. While they had to completely rely on the Spirit of God in guiding them, the church today is in even, even better position to pursue God's will because we do have His complete, fully inspired Word to our disposal. When we have burdens and issues that come up through the guidance and the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we have something to affirm what God has been telling us. 
As John writes in his first epistle, we can test the spirits, or that is, the spirit that's within us, whether it comes from our human and fleshly desires, from a place of being delivered into our own sin, or if it comes from being led by God. This is my prayer many times that when I feel burdened about something, that I would ask God if I feel burdened about it simply because, well, I want to, or is it because the Spirit is actually burdening me with this? One of the ways that I can test that is, does the burden go away on its own? Well, if it doesn't, maybe it's not coming from me. Second, is it in accordance with Scripture? And perhaps this should go first. Whether it goes first or last, it definitely comes first in a way of priority. Scripture is the ultimate measure of whether we are doing things by faith. I know this because God, in His utterance and the leadership that He provides individual Christians, will never contradict anything that He says in the Bible. That's simply because God is unchanging. Numbers 23, 19 tells us that God is not man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. He has said and he and will he not he what he has said, will he not do or has he spoken? What has he spoken and will not fulfill? God's unchanging. Malachi 3, 6, at least the first part of the verse says, for I, the Lord, do not change. We worship, glorify, serve, and are at the complete disposal of an unchanging God. He's perfect. He has no reason to change. He has no need to change because He's completely perfect in everything that He does. That means whenever He inspires 66 books to make the New Testament and the Old Testament canon, it is perfect. That's what I know about the Word of God. Therefore, as I follow the Spirit in life, I have to be sure that what I am being led in is also affirmed in Scripture. It is always true that God, the way that God leads and places the desires in the hearts of His people will be in accordance with Scripture. The Bible is clear on many things, on some things it's not clear about. But what it is clear on is absolute. There's no arguing with God. God's always been right, always will be right. That's important for us to take hold of as we consider what it means to be led by the Spirit, taking up the spiritual armor of God as we combat spiritual warfare in our church and in our world and in our community and in our personal lives even. So, this guiding utterance of the Spirit is explained, I think, in a more general sense when we look at what this sword actually is. Hebrews 4.12, hopefully you're all familiar with this lovely passage, says, The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow." and is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. I love that passage. That the Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, that it's quick, that it's revealing. Now, we have to look at the context of that passage if we're going to understand how it explains what Paul is 
writing in Ephesians chapter 6, we have to know that in Ephesians chapter 4, what the author of Hebrews is writing about is he's appealing to the um, Jewish audience that he was writing to that they would not harden their hearts the way the people of Israel had in the past. The author is identifying the power of God's message and exposing that as God's word penetrates God's people, it lays people bare. It goes on in verse 14 that neither is there any creature that is manifest in his sight, that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him who we have to do. What? Whom we have to do, seeing that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our profession. The fact that the Spirit of God, that the Word of God, that the utterance and also His inspired Scripture is compared to a sword gives us a picture that the sword of God cuts through the false intentions that false prophets and the like would bring to us. It exposes the heart. It penetrates everything that there is that the Word of God literally shows the intentions of man. God doesn't judge us just based off of what we do, what we don't do. He judges us about the placement of our heart, whether it's completely His or if we're half-hearted in any way that we serve Him. To be made perfectly holy, I tried to emphasize this point, especially since we're looking at what the breastplate of righteousness was only a few weeks ago. To be perfectly holy is to be completely at the disposal of God, completely His and completely His possession. This guides us in realizing so much about Him and what He wants. As verse 14 continues to go on in Hebrews, explaining everything that everything is before God and revealed before Him, we are told in verse 16 that even though we are laid bare, every, even though the, the bones and marrow are divided and everything is naked before God because He sees things plainly. And Psalm, uh, is it not Psalm? It is Psalm 139, I think, where He hems me in before and behind me. All the presence of God being everywhere that we are and totally con- confining us in His love and His goodness and everything else. Despite that, we can go boldly before Him. To be led by the Spirit means not just to be split open by God's Word that everything inside of us, including our intentions, would be exposed, but if we're filled with the Spirit and our intentions are exposed, still we have a great communion with a God who is in heaven. It exposes and reveals right from wrong. As we consider the predicament that I think the church is in, not our church, but I speak in a general sense, as a Christian community, the church is in desperate need of discernment. This understanding of what is right and what is wrong. It seems like we've adopted more and more some ambiguity about what is what and everything else. The church needs discernment. Desperately, the church needs discernment. Discernment comes from the Word of God. It comes from people being filled with the Spirit and being led by God. It comes from people knowing how to pursue Him and everything that He gives us. And we've been warned in Scripture over and over, time and time again, of the warning that's coming before the church in the last days. By the way, we're in the last days. 
The warning that God gives us in his word is that false teachers will come before us. Jude writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to, to write to you about our common salvation. I love that. Jude's a little bitty letter in the back of the Bible. He's writing, and first of all, I love Jude and James because they're the half-brothers of Jesus. And so they're, I mean, I feel like that's what I would lead with. Hey, I was raised next to Jesus. I grew up with Jesus. Like, that's what I would have led with. Instead, Jude's writing, and he says, you know what I really want to write to you about? First of all, it's humble. He says, I wanted to write about the common salvation that we have in Christ because the salvation that Christ has provided to us, the helmet of salvation that the Christian saints are putting on, we have all of this, and we have it together, and we share it, and it's wonderful, and this is what I wanted to write about because it brings me so much joy. But he says, I can't write to you about that. I found it necessary to write to you Right, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. I really wanted to talk about and write to you and discuss and spend time in and relish the common salvation that we have in God, but I found it necessary to write to you to appeal, to exhort, to stir you up, to contend for the faith for the faith that was once delivered to all saints, because it's a common salvation. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for the condemnation, ungodly people who perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. What a terrifying thought. When we think about the church and how beautiful she is, and I mean, we're coming to the end of our study of the book of Ephesians, which I think puts a lot of emphasis on God's church. Drawing that our identity is not in my old self that was a child of wrath. It's in my common salvation through Christ who has saved me and adopted me, and now I'm a child of God that has grafted me into the nation of the people that he has chosen, that I would stand with them united in a global sense, and then that that global application should be represented in particular churches. That my purpose here on earth is to equip the saints around me, that I would continue to use the gifts of God that are inside me, driving me, that are emboldening me, that are driving everything that I do to nourish the bride of Christ because she's so important. When I think about churches today, and there's not one church that's perfect. There's not one church in the world today that's not perfect. But Christ calls her his bride. Well, I look at her with some of them have wrinkles and pimples and warts and spots and everything else. Christ loves every single one of them. Not only that, but he says, I'm going to take it. I'm going to make it pure and holy unto myself. There's a day in glory coming when the church is going to be gathered in heaven singing without spot, wrinkle, or blemish, and we're going to be glorifying God altogether and without any spot, without any defect. And by the way, 
The church in heaven, because we'll all be together, that's a local church too. Some of you didn't get my joke. I'm trying to be funny. What a glorious day that we have to look forward to. When the church is in this perfect state, when it's perfectly presented before God. But until then, Jude writes to the saints, I contend to you for, to contend for this faith that we have because in the last days, there's going to be spiritual warfare. There's going to be people that have crept in. There's going to be this false sense of what the church is. And I tried to make this case this morning, and I really, really pray. I, I felt self-conscious about it all afternoon, and I've had to keep myself away from Michelle because when I feel this way, I ask her 20 questions, maybe 40 questions. And normally I require her to write a comprehensive analysis and critical critique of everything that I said in the morning sermon if I feel too insecure about it. But I tried to bring out the, the, the necessity behind this that's presented in church history. I don't think that's boring. I actually think it's incredibly relevant that it seems like history is repeating itself. Because churches today don't see an importance to make sure that we have a regenerate membership. That's a terrifying thought when you think that the church is supposed to be led by the people who are in the church. If they're not led by God, who's actually running the church? Well, that's a spot or wrinkle I don't think Jesus tolerates. So, the Spirit of God, not only is it the power in the church that guides us, but it's also, the, it takes the initiative to expose every intention that we have. The third point, because it does talk about the Word of God, we have to talk about the inspiration of Scripture. Everything that's been contributed to comprise these books that we have before us. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Paul actually made up a word in 2 Timothy 3.16. Deo numos. It's a word that doesn't exist anywhere else. He made the word up himself. It's comprised of two other words. God breathed. And the idea that he conjures up with his made-up word is that when God inspires Scripture, he literally breathes it out. You might think about the way that we humans make sound. As I stand up here and speak to you, and you hear my voice, what's actually happening is my lungs are filling up with air. That air is getting pushed up through my diaphragm coming across my vocal folds, and I'm actually doing a complex series of muscular movements in my throat that those vibrations would create sound. When God says that His Word is God-breathed, it is literally a picture of God taking the air out of my lungs and instead putting, oh, by the way, did you know breathe, the word for wind, pneumos, is also the word for spirit? God's spirit he puts his spirit inside of me, so this pneumos is in my lungs. As it comes across my vocal folds, it might be my throat that's producing the sound, but it is God that's moving the vocal folds. Now, I'm not saying that what I'm preaching right now is God's inspired word. I'm, I'm a fallible man. And God's given us our, our complete word, so he's not going to use me like that. 
But as Paul sat down in prison to write this letter to the church in Ephesus, it is completely God-inspired. Everything that we know about God's nature, we can then attribute to all of His words because God doesn't make mistakes. It's perfect. That means it can't be proven wrong. It's infallible. It has no needs to change. It means what it always meant. From generation to generation, what God has written in His Word isn't changing. Not one step, any, any direction. Also, it's completely sufficient. It provides everything that I need for faith and for life. It equips the Christian with everything I will ever need. Nothing needs to be added to it. Nothing should be taken from it. Revelation 22, 18 and 19 warns everyone who hears the word of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the word of the book of, pro- of, the book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. It's been completed. That's not to say that Christian authors today haven't written great works expounding God's Word and describing God's nature and even communicating different principles in it. But this is the inspired book and God's not adding anything to it because it's been perfected. We look at the spirit that's guiding the church and I think about the success that the church had in the early centuries and I look at the book that we have now. We have a book that guides us and directs us in everything that we need that is perfect, inspired, not changing. And sufficient. That's a wonderful truth to grab hold of as we look at what we can do with this book. Not only can we test the guiding of the Spirit against it to make sure that we're maintained in unity, but also we can delight in it. Psalm 1-2 says that we can delight in the law of the Lord, and on this law He meditates day and night. We can memorize it. We can spend time with it. We can store it in our heart. We can teach it to our children. In fact, we're commanded to teach it to our children. Deuteronomy 6-6. These words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and rest. Spirit of God is moving in His Word, and if the people of God would come to His Word and submit to it in all things, God promises to do incredible works through the church. Do we really contend for our neighbor's salvation? It's a question that's been puzzling me because there's some neighbors in my neighborhood I don't know their name, and I have to ask, do I actually care if that person's a Christian or not? The burden that we have to serve God and to be at His disposal and to be led in all things that He does, these, the, it comes from His Word. And we have evangelists and preachers who would rely on their own rhetoric and their own wisdom and their own form of argument instead of placing all of their emphasis on God's Word and allowing it to be the sword that divides the Spirit, that reveals the intentions in the hearts of man. The last point this evening, we're going to wrap up quickly. How do we interpret God's Word? Well, this is an important point because if we've established that the Bible's not changing, that means that different interpretations aren't going to change what the Bible means. If we establish that God's Word is perfect, well, that also means that the interpretation has to be what the Bible means in order for it to be perfect. 
Interpretation is crucial, and I, maybe we neglect spending time on this. The Bible cannot be understood. This is important if we do not have God's Spirit guiding us and understanding it. There are people who have written Bible commentaries that openly confess that they are not saved, that they are not Christians. Those commentaries are not worth anything. The only way to read God's Word and to understand it is a complete reliance and dependence upon the Spirit of God that translates the meaning and applies it to our lives, that convicts our heart, that pierces our intentions, that lays us asunder, that divides the bone and the marrow in us. Because the Bible works not just as a sword and a defense against the enemy, but also in our own lives that we would pursue holiness in a way that glorifies God. Actually, I think this is the reason a lot of people avoid reading the Bible for themselves is because it's impossible to read the Bible with the Spirit and to not have to respond constantly. God's Word guides us in this. And so two things. First of all, to start interpreting the Bible, we have to start with being filled with the Spirit. Second, to end with studying the Bible, we have to apply it to our lives. If we study the Bible without any application, without a new understanding, without transformation, without application, without there being something that we need to go and do as a response to God's Word, we have missed the point entirely. Already we've got the beginning and the end. Well, what goes in the middle? If we begin by praying and asking God to guide us and to give us understanding... We have to realize then that the second half of the conversation with God comes from the right relationship that we have with Him, confession, so that the Spirit could dwell and we could be filled, that we could understand things. Next, we observe. Simply observe what the Bible says. Now, don't jump the gun here. Don't try running the application because guess what? You're not going to be able to apply what the Bible says if you don't know what the Bible says. Lots of people skip that step. Just make observations. What does it say? And I think sometimes when we have discussion-based Bible studies, you guys think that I lay traps for you and give you all sorts of trick questions because they just seem entirely too simple. That's because the first step in studying the Bible and interpreting it is asking the simple questions. Who, what, when, where, why? What does it say? I can't stress enough how important this is. People would be spared so much bad Bible study if they would simply ask, what does it say? And make simple observations. We could avoid heresy and the like if we would just ask this simple question first because the Bible means what it always meant. God didn't write the Bible to be confusing. Remember the introduction to this morning's sermon? We mentioned Kani Greek being the language that the Bible was written in. Do you remember the purpose for that, for bringing that up? God wrote the Bible for the common person. He's a God that reveals Himself. He wants you to know who He is and what He is. The main things in the Bible are the plain things in the Bible. So, 
The second step, we pray, we make confession, make sure that we're being led by the Spirit. We earnestly contend with the Spirit of God to guide us into understanding as a result of reading His Word. Second, we make observations, simply asking, what does it mean? We have to consider then, what did it mean to the original audience? There's a historical component to this. What does it mean to the original audience? Because the people that the author was writing to, that's what it originally meant, and so that's what it's going to continue to mean. What was the original circumstance when they were writing it? In the book of Paul, we've made mention several times, Paul's in prison, writing to a church that he planted. That's important because that unveils for us a lot of different mysteries that exist in the book. What is the Bible saying, and how is it saying it? Third step, pray, observe. Third step, still aren't at application. Now we have to begin the process of interpreting that observation. Scripture is never going to contradict itself. Here's another important point. Ultimately, the context of a passage moves all the way up to the entire Bible. So if we're going to interpret it, we should have some familiar as Christian saints who have been in the Word and who have been studying it with other passages in the Bible. If we read something that seems to contradict something else that we've read, well, then we need to go to that passage and we need to contend with that context and start bringing these things together because the Bible doesn't contradict itself. That's silly. God's perfect. He doesn't make mistakes. God wrote the Bible. There's no perfect imperfections in it. If you found a self-contradiction, you're not reading it right. Or at least you're not understanding it correctly. So those contradictions are actually very helpful in biblical interpretation. And second, we should ask, what was the author's intended meaning? Right? What was that original context? Again, back to that. So we pray. We observe, we interpret, and finally, we get to the transformation. In response to that, in understanding whatever we're reading in the Bible, how do we apply it to our lives? How do we celebrate everything that has been given to us by God? And if you can't celebrate this, it's actually relatively new that, well, we have the literacy skills and we have the Bible before us and a translation that's readable and everything else. We don't have to rely on anything but God's words directly as we commune with Him and we spend time with Him. This incredible blessing that we have as Christians, it cannot be overemphasized. It cannot be drawn up. It can't be stirred up. The Bible has all of the power and all of the privilege that the church will ever need to be successful in contending for the faith as Jude has commended to his readers. It's everything. Well, it's everything. And so we make transform, it transforms us as we continue to pursue the Spirit. It matures us. It helps us to grow up in the faith. It helps us to contend for all things. It draws us closer to other Christians. So much so that when it fills our conversations, our minds, and we spend time with us and we're starting to make application, it transforms the way that you interact with other people. All of the powers in the Bible. It's everything. What a gift. A few applications that we could make for that. 
we should be trusting the saints that we're brought into community with. As we're studying the Bible and we're reading these things, we should be contending with one another the way that the saints in Berea were in Acts chapter 17. This is what grows the church. It, it's, it's not solid Bible studies. It's not solid topics. It's not even solid preaching. It's the entire saint body reading the Bible, coming together and contending for that faith together that they would be preaching the gospel to each other and that's what's building them up. It's an incredible idea and an incredible concept. It changes the way that we parent. Brother Jesse was here a few weeks ago and he, he made a comment. He said, I don't remember how it came up in conversation. I probably can't tell you even if I did. But he, he, he made a comment. He said, why do you get to call your children depraved little sinners, but I can't? And I said, because we baptized them as a church, so you can't call them depraved little sinners anymore. And by the way, parents, this opens the door for you in the way that you parent. You have to raise depraved little sinners differently than you raise saints. You contend with them in the faith. Yeah, as your parent, you have authority over them and they're commanded to honor you, not until they're 18, but their whole life. They're supposed to honor you. That's a command that's found in Scripture. Even in that, as a saint, you're supposed to raise them differently. Contend with them not just as to an appeal to your authority, but contend with them to an appeal to God's authority in the Bible. It's a different way of raising kids.